From the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio, this is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to Season 3 of our podcast. We are so glad you could join us. This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics. Our guest today is Tiffany Kennard Payton, Dean of Students at Walsh University here in Canton. She is an alumna of Walsh and has spent nearly 15 years working at her alma mater in the offices of residential life, student conduct, and multicultural affairs, in addition to her current position. She is also a graduate of Project Blueprint, the United Way program started by season two guest Flo Janani, which seeks to train people of color for membership on nonprofit boards. And she is one of our newest board members here at the Canton Symphony Orchestra. TK Payton, welcome to Orchestrating Change. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you all. It's gonna yeah. be fun. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. So you are a new board member, so we don't know you very well yet. Um, so just to start us off, would you mind just telling us a little bit about you and how you grew up and how your family maybe incorporated music in your life, if at all, if at all and yeah, just more about you. Sure. So um, born in West Virginia, um, and so my, my roots are, will always remain in West Virginia, Steel Town. Um, and I always put it out there just as a disclaimer, I know this is heavy uh, Browns country, but I'm a Steelers fan for life. So <laughs> hopefully that doesn't disqualify me, you know, uh, for board membership. Well, <laughs> but, I have to say, if uh, if this New England Patriots fan here could be accepted uh, moving from Providence, Rhode Island to Ohio to join the Canton Symphony, I think you'll be just fine. <laughs> okay, great. Good to know. Um, but moved to um, Ohio pretty early and um, grew up in Perry, Maslin area. Um, but ultimately, I was a graduate from Maslin, Washington High School. So go Tigers. <laughs> and um, when I think about like things that were important to me growing up, definitely like faith and family. I'm a preacher's kid. So mm -hmm. and I'm a double preacher's kid because both of my parents are preachers, my grandmother, um, a lot of my aunts and uncles, so it runs deep. Wow. And so, yeah, I spend a lot of time in church um, most every day of the week. <laughs> and a lot of that was centered around music. So singing in the church choir, um, doing solos, being a choir director, helping with like our children's choir. Um, I spent some time learning how to play the piano and... I mean, music was just part of like everything that we did. It really was something that like centered us. There were a lot of like faith songs that we were singing in church and out of church that really helped to ground us um, in our experiences. And then, you know, it, it was just like 
integrated to everything we did. And then also in high school, I played a couple of different instruments. Um, so I was a jack of all trades, master of none, but I did my best. <laughs> um, so played saxophone, clarinet, uh, mellophone, percussion um, over my time there. And so, yeah, music's in my blood. It's, it's, a, it's part of everything for me. That's so cool. I think, well, I heard two things in that entire thing that one applied to me and one applies to Matthew. I know Matthew's a saxophone player. Um, And then my grandpa was also a preacher. So there is some, there's some PK energy in me as well. Um, Yeah, that's so cool. I was curious, what faith tradition did you grow up in? Sure. We're, um, my family's Pentecostal apostolic. And so I call that sure enough church where <laughs> very charismatic yeah. and, um, you know, just very, like I said, centered around like music as ministry. So, you know, there's some people that talk about just like a song that someone's singing. We really take that like serious that you're not just singing a song, you're worshiping and praising God. And it's something that changes the atmosphere uh, many times during our services. And so making sure you're doing it with reverence, mm-hmm. but also with full focus and energy, critical. Wow. Very intentional music making. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I'm a lifelong Episcopalian myself. I've sung in my church, several choirs of churches that I've been a part of, including where I currently worship. And I have to say that the, I know the musical tradition is very, very different, but we approach our music making in our choir the same way. Really, the, the, exactly as you described, it resonates very much with me in my experience. I grew up Lutheran, and it's a little not as <laughs> intense in Lutheranism, but here we are. It's fine. Well, I did a lot of me. My parents were musicians, so my dad forced bluegrass music into the church, and it, he made it work. <laughs> you know, God accepts all worship, so <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> like however you come, you know. Awesome. Very fun. So tell us a little bit about your career path. Uh, you went to Walsh and uh, you've been working at Walsh now for a while. How, uh, tell us how your, how your relationship with Walsh originally started and how it's continued today. Sure. I would say that my journey to Walsh was a journey of faith as well. So like I said, like faith is like very important to everything that I've done. And I believe that I'm at Walsh and it's not by mistake. It happened very intentionally because I actually had no intention on being a student at Walsh. I graduated and I wanted to get away from home and spread my wings a little bit. So I had picked a school in Pennsylvania that was like close to four hours away. And I got there and it was a, a you know, a religiously affiliated institution. So, cause that was very important to me in my, my school search is finding a, an institution that there was a faith practice that was part of that. But it, it, it just was not the school for me. And we know that that happens, you know, students transfer, they try to figure it out. And so I took some time uh, away from school um, and had some, some life changes. But when I I've always had a desire to go back to school and my parents had previously said when I was graduating, you should go to Walsh. And I was like, no, it's too close. But when I got ready to go back to school, my mom mentioned, she reminded me, what about Walsh? And it hit different in that moment. And she said, I think this could be the place for you. And so I came on a tour and the director of the undergraduate admissions, I will never forget her, shout out to Linda Suffron. Um, There was nobody else in the office at that time. And as a director of the department, she took me on a personal tour of the university and it felt like home. 
Um, there was just such a personal touch there. And I remember feeling like wanted um, and welcome in a way that I didn't at my previous institution that I was like, wow, like I really wanna see what this is about. But I wasn't sure if I was gonna actually be able to, to go to Walsh because as many of our students do, had some academic challenges and um, some financial challenges and wasn't sure I was gonna be able to even get my transcripts to go to school. But Walsh was like, we will figure it out. We know that you're supposed to be here with us. And I was like, yes, I, 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 it was, everything was aligned except for this transcript. And so I kept saying, you know, how am I gonna do this? And I had gone into prayer with my family and, I, you know, at some point I told my mom, I said, mom, the Lord dropped in my spirit that I should write my school a letter and ask them for my transcripts. And she was like, okay, what is your letter going to say? And I said, well, it's going to say that, you know, I went into prayer. I talked to the Lord about it. And he said, you're going to give me my transcripts so that I can go to this school. And my mom was like, what? Like, are you serious? Like, are you sure that that's the letter you want to write? And I said, yes. I said, I know the Lord's voice and he has affirmed in many ways that week leading up to it that I need to just write it very plainly and send it. So we prayed and I sent the letter, didn't hear anything for a few months. And I know there are some people that are like, mm, well, I don't know. But like I said, when, when you have faith, you have to lean in and be confident in what you know to be, you know, the Lord's voice or him, you know, leading and guiding you. A couple months later, I got a call from Walsh. And they said, can you come down to the school? And I was thinking, oh my gosh, like it's going to be something terrible. I had no idea. I got down there and they said, we have a letter for you. But, you know, there was instructions not to open it until I came to the school. And so they gave me the letter and I opened up the letter and there were two things inside. There was a letter for me that said, we read your letter and here's what we've decided. We're going to like waive um, the grades that I'd had for that semester like, so I didn't get any Fs or anything like that. And then they released a set of transcripts so that I could continue my journey at Walsh. That's incredible. And, and I tell that story to every student that I can, because I want them to know that there's nothing that is impossible. Like everything is possible. You have to believe and trust. And if you're a person of faith, like know the Lord's voice, because it could have been any kind of voice, you know, saying whatever, but knowing if you have that relationship, knowing his voice and trusting it, no matter what anyone else says and leaning in. And that's how I ended up at Walsh. Wow. And I've been here ever since. And I've worked in a variety of different departments, um, which I know, like I said, I don't believe I'm here by accident that um, God was like, you know, preparing me for the position of Dean of Students. I worked in you know, academic support for a while. I worked in student service center, um, doing some things with accommodations, multicultural affairs, residence life, mm -hmm. conduct, all these different things. And at the time I was like, how does this fit in with, with my career? Like it didn't make sense. And I got my bachelor's in sociology and my master's in counseling. And I was still like, how does this all fit in? But in the past few years, it all made sense. All those different jobs and certifications and degrees have, I believe, uniquely prepared me to be the best dean of students um, for our students for the time that we have now and just understanding all the different nuances of like how our students navigate and what they need. And so I feel really blessed um, to have had this experience in the way that it's happened. 
That is very cool. I think it's always fun listening to people's college stories or how they got to their university or, you know, cause I, you know, I'm from Oklahoma. I went to school in Ohio. So people are always like, how did you even know that Ohio was a state that you could go to school at? Um, and so it's always very cool to see how, when you are intentional with your life, you go where you're supposed to go and you find your path and you do what you're supposed to do. And I like looking at your career, I think like that would make a, for a very good dean of students, being able to, I mean, with counseling and sociology too, as those degrees of being able to understand the human mind and those struggles that people go through, because God knows college students are going through a lot. There's a lot going on in college because it's a you know pivotal time in life. There's a lot of changes going on. So like along with that, what now that you are a dean of students and you've been working with students for a very long time, what is your favorite part or some some things you love about working with college students in that population there's so much that i love um i believe that uh, there's opportunities for growth in everything that individuals do and so i really love being able to see our students grow in a lot of different ways i love seeing them stretch themselves um to like think outside of the box to critically think about the world around them and what that means, not just for them, but for other people. And there's this term we use in higher ed all the time about meeting the students where they are. And so I have another piece that I add to it. And it's, yes, we want to meet the students where they are, but we don't want to leave them where they're at. Mm. So finding like how to help them to transition and make like develop competencies and skills so that they can make better life decisions for themselves, that that's what we're we actually get paid to do. We don't get paid to tell them what to do, but we get paid to walk alongside them and help them develop it so that they can do it on our own. Because the, really, the time they spend with us is just a few short years. In the, you know, when we think about their entire lives, so making sure when they leave us that they're as best equipped to manage all the things that life is going to throw up throw at them in the best way possible. So I love being able to see that, especially with the students that I call them, they're like at potential. And so they come in and they have lots of challenges, lots of things that they need to work through. It's my absolute favorite thing to see them walk across the stage for three, four or five years later. And they hold up that diploma. And I'm like, yes, I'm like, they made it. They were able to push through and make it. And it's just so rewarding to see that from them. Yeah, you know, and all of us, I, I can certainly say I changed more as a person. I developed more as a person between freshman year and senior year of college than I think at any other time in my life. I really became who I am today in college. I, was, I really think I was someone totally different when I started. So I'm sure to watch that yeah. year in and year out, each class to watch that has gotta be just incredibly rewarding for you as, as you're saying. Oh so as we mentioned at the top of the show, you are one of the newest board members here at the Canton Symphony, and you are an alum of Project Blueprint, which for those of you who have been listening to the podcast all along, you guys know what that's all about. Uh, Flo Janani's program at the United Way to train and place 
members of our minority communities here in Canton on nonprofit boards. So tell us a little bit about your experience as a participant in P Project Blueprint. Sure. So I originally heard about it from someone who was in a previous cohort, um, but at the time, um, I wasn't able to participate. And then there was COVID and, you know, life happens. And so Flo had outreach because I originally had uh, filled out the application before to say, hey, are you interested in hopping onto this next cohort? And it was very serendipitous because I had just uh, had a transition at my job where I had been previously been the vice chair for our university senate and the vice chair doesn't do much besides taking notes and in the event that the chair is not there insert you know duties as assigned but this our sounds chair was a lot very like my job as associate conductor here at the Canton <laughs> Symphony <laughs> <we> Orchestra <laughs> yeah and so you know it's it was, there was not a lot of labor, it wasn't labor intensive. And so when the chair uh, abruptly um, transitioned to uh, another uh, institution, it wasn't gonna be at Walsh anymore, the bylaws state that the vice chair takes over. Um, and with like majority vote, then can, can continue as the chair. And all of a sudden I was thrust into the chair role, which came with a ton of responsibilities. And I was like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And it was right at the same time when Flo had outreach and I was like, oh, well, this is perfect. And so I signed up, you know, had full support of my institution to do that and, you know, became a part of that cohort for Project Blueprint. What are some things like in that program, what do you think in that program prepared you most for what you do at Walsh, but also for being on a board? I would probably say the initial conversations that talked about board structures, so how boards are put together, the types of different roles that different boards can have. Because I, like I said, I had some experience, but not enough to really know like the nuances and why knowing those was important. The finance, really every single lesson in, pro in Project Blueprint prepared me in some ways. Mm -hmm. So there was the financial piece talking about the, the fiduciary responsibilities and all those different things, why that's important, um, getting born engagement, how to navigate that, um, Robert's rules. So yeah. last time I even remember Robert rule, Robert's rules was in high school. You know, they have like model UN and something, you know, some of those things, but it had been a long time. <laughs> and so being able to talk about Robert's rules not just what it is, but why it's important and how it helps with setting the structure, critical because we had some things that we were navigating not much soon after that on campus where we definitely need is Robert's rules. So it helped build my confidence as a chair to be able to say, like, this is how we're going to navigate this. And so there was just a wealth of knowledge and, and opportunities for skill, skills building that happened there that I don't know that I would have been able to be as successful as I have been as a chair without that. Mm. Yeah. So you took a lot from the experience, not only for going forward on, uh, for instance, here at the Canton Symphony, but also at your job at Walsh, yeah. which is, which is fascinating, yeah, really which is, good. which is amazing. Now, had you ever thought before being a part of Project Blueprint that you might be on a board like the Canton Symphony? So I've, I had thought about it, yes. 
But one of the, the challenges is that at least it appeared to me, not that this is, is the reality of it, but it just seemed like I wasn't necessarily in the place to be like tapped in, if that makes sense. Like my, my thought process about boards before this was that like you have to know somebody who knows somebody to be a part of a board. And there are lots of really good causes and organizations in the community that I absolutely would wanna be a part of, including the Canton Symphony. But I just didn't think that that was something that was open to me because I wasn't like tapped in like in the cool kids group as mm -hmm. I thought at the time to be able to be shoulder tapped for something like this. And this yeah. is something we've heard yeah, before. Yeah. Uh, a guest on season two, Gita Somayajala, told us that the, the only way that she got onto the boards that she was on was basically she knew someone who knew yeah. somebody who directly reached out to her. Mm -hmm. So to me, this is something why I see that Project Blueprint and things like it are so important for our communities. This idea that the perception is still that it's like this club of, of people. Um, and we talked about this at a board, mem board meeting recently, Flo was there, um, about looking at our board and the people who would go out and get new board members, right? Because the people who are on your board are the people who would know people who would want to be on a board. But if your board all looks like the same person and they're friends with people who look like them, it's hard to tap people on the shoulder in our community who could bring new perspectives. And that's why we tend to see a lot of boards that just are very homogenous in the way that they look and are structured. Um, and so, yeah, to Matthew's point, that's kind of the reason why this is so important because unless you know someone who knows someone in the past, typically, that's not how you got on board. And we did an exercise as yeah. a board and staff at the, in the spring, in the late spring, where we essentially uh, had to fill out a survey of what is the race or ethnicity of your closest friends, the people you go to church with, the people you work with, your neighbors. Your neighbors. Yeah. Like it was, and I was filling it out, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I am embodying this. I'm I've fallen right into the stereotype of the answers like mm -hmm. I, and it, it really opened my eyes and it certainly was eye-opening for us and looking at our board and and the the way we got to the to where we are right now mm -hmm. but again we are we're just so thrilled that we have connected with flow and now we've connected with you yeah so uh you picked the Canton Symphony as a board to to join as the board that you wanted to join what excites you about the orchestra there there's a few things so um you know when i had gone to there was a fair that they had for project blueprint and where you got a chance to meet the different organizations and agencies that have board membership positions open and there was just something about well so i'm a lover of music at my core, it doesn't matter what type of music it is, like I'll listen to it. Um, I actually had a, an experience, a very formative experience when I first went to school as a freshman at the, the school I transferred from where I had an international roommate and I had never listened to like world music before that. And she exposed me to a whole bunch of different mu music and actually I started listening to Shakira well before she was the Shakira that everybody sees today. The one that had, she used to have like very dark red and black hair 
and her music was much different than it was now. Um, but I started listening to her and that was like back in the late nineties. And I was like, wow, I didn't realize that there was this whole other genre of music that would excite me. And it really, and it wasn't that I didn't like it. I just hadn't been exposed. And so I took that experience. And when I thought about the opportunity to be able to um, be a part of the Canton Sym Symphony in any way, I was like, this is a great opportunity to ex our community even further to something that they don't, they may not know that they, they like it until they have an opportunity to be exposed or, you know, or have an opportunity to experience that because I believe that that's what happens like particularly in, in the United States. There's a lot of things that we don't know or that we would like or enjoy, but it's because we're sometimes very like ego focused, like me, me, me. And it's like, what's comfortable for me. And so they don't like, you have to be intentional if you wanna you know, be exposed to a lot of different things and to be able to understand other people's uh, perspectives. You have to do a lot of intentional work to do that. And if we would just stretch ourselves beyond what's comfortable, getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, I think there's a lot of opportunity for rich experiences that we can share. And then that creates more opportunities for shared experiences. And then we're like, oh, well, we have this in common and we can find more commonalities if we would just stretch ourselves. But people just like being comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so they don't stretch themselves. But I think this is an opportunity like to be able to do that in a very significant way because like music, it like heals people. And it's something that like really touches the soul no matter what kind of genre it is. And I believe that this, this is an opportunity to share more of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've uh, exactly what you're saying about people being comfortable with what they know. Mm -hmm. This is something we observe even for the, the stalwart fans of the Canton Symphony or really most orchestras across the country. Beethoven and Tchaikovsky sell very well. And everything else, it's kind of a flip of a coin, whether it's going to sell well or not. People love what they know. And, and we are hoping across the board that we can get more people to give something a try that maybe they're not familiar with or not comfortable with. And you know what? Hopefully more times than not, they're going to like it. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, just like a, a small little question. Had you attended the Canton, have you ever attended the Canton Symphony before? Yes. Okay, cool. So, so two performances at the request of a friend who is obsessed with the symphony. Um, but I previously, you know, been connected to like symphonic music, classical music. I have a daughter that plays violin. And so she has been obsessed with all things classical music ever since she was little. And I can't even remember like, you know, one particular experience that like struck, you know, struck her, but like she came up to me when she was in fifth grade and she was like, you know, you know how they pick the different instruments and different things and, you know, they have the, the flutophone and like, you know, <laughs> all these things that I'm like, oh, okay, you know, that fifth grade music. And she was like, mom, I want a violin. Okay. So I had to like quickly like shift my mindset as far as like, how can I help her to be successful? We had to go to a violin shop, find the right kind of starter violin. You know, I learned a lot about um, bows and strings and like, you know, all these extra things that you need to have. And, you know, from there, we, as a family, we started to listen to more 
like classical music because she was practicing that. We went to a ton of like string quartet, you know, all of those different things. And it was just a, a, like an opportunity for us as a family to be able to come together because we would get tickets for uh, my extended family that's in town. And many of them had not been exposed to any kind of like classical music or symphonic music at all. Mm -hmm. And so for many of them, it was like their first time listening to an orchestra. Right. And so, yeah, it, it's, it was great. Yeah. I, that, I find that a lot with, um, when I, so I play bassoon and when I started playing bassoon, I my parents were not symphony goers before, like my, my dad's a musician, but he'd never really, he, symphony wasn't his thing. But when I started playing a classical instrument, we started going to the Oklahoma City Philharmonic because I was, I was in the youth orchestra and we were going because I was obsessed. Um, and that's how my parents now are still season ticket holders because of me picking a classical instrument when I was a kid, which I thought is, and that's really interesting. I feel like maybe that happens with a lot of parents. Right. I, I have the same story. My parents are subscribers to the Cincinnati Opera and my mom is on the board now, oh. largely because her son has conducted Aww. a ton of opera and she, through going <laughs> to my performances, it's been a little while since I've done opera simply because of the way the profession works sometimes, but simply by going to a bunch of performances in my earlier years as a conductor, she fell in love with the art form and is now super, super involved with it. Very cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm just curious, like being a board member now on, on this, this Canton Symphony's board, is there something about being a board member that excites you the most right now? Um, I think just being able to like share my perspective, as I was saying earlier, um, I believe that all the different experiences that I've had, it's not by mistake. And that being, having the opportunity to share those, my perspective and, and find new and exciting ways to support the mission of the Canton Symphony, um, while also challenging the organization to look at other ways that they can be like inclusive of the local community. Um, is something that excites me because it's aligned with like my my personal like mission and vision but also my professional one and so that's that's what it makes me the most excited to be a part of the board yeah and we are so excited because we know that we don't have all of the answers for some of the questions that we are asking and some of the goals that we want to accomplish as far as really serving the entirety of the Canton and Stark County communities. Yeah. So we are so thrilled that, that you have chosen to join our board. Yeah. And, and we're also thrilled. I mean, when, when you joined the board, we were an entirely white board. There were no people of color on the board when you joined. Um, and so that leap of faith in us <laughs> to join an organization, um, it really speaks a lot to you. And um, we're just really grateful that you're here now because um, when Michelle uh, told me about, I think, your first meeting that you had and all the ideas you already were having, I was like, what? This is great. What's happening? This is amazing. It was, it was so much board engagement and you were just, just on the board. It was so cool. It was very, very cool. Something a little more fun and lighthearted. I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for our listeners right now of what are some things that you've been up to? What are some, um, I don't know, something you're listening to, a book you're reading, any recommendations for us? Okay. So I absolutely love this question. When I saw that on the list of questions, I was like, oh, I'm so excited to talk about this because um, 
Well, and not again, not knowing that this is where we were going to end up. Okay, right now I am completely obsessed with Damien Escobar. Are you guys familiar with him at all? No, no I am not. Okay, so I need you to write down the name, Google it, go to your Apple Music or Spotify and check out his music. So he is an American, um, what is it, violinist? Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Okay. And he he was like a, a youth prodigy. He was at Juilliard when he was like 10. Um, he's done like all these like amazing things. But the reason why I know him is that him and his brother, um, I know his music from something called Nothing But uh, Strings. So they were on um, America's Got Talent. Um, they've been involved in a lot of like different like trendy things. Um, like just at different concerts and different things like that. But I started listening to them um, through that and then took a break and decided to come back and do like some solo work. Oh my goodness. His, his solo albums are the bomb. And it's great because I need uh, like this mix between like urban music with a classical feel at work, you know, like way better than elevator music. Um, that I can play at work that is still has a groove and whatnot, but it matches like the atmosphere that I want in my, in my office. And he has these, these albums that are just amazing. He takes like current, he does pop, R&B, rap, all different types of genres of music. And he puts this like classical, like, it's like this fusion of like all things great. And he's amazing. So if you haven't listened to Damien Escobar, look him up. Like my ultimate goal is to get to, if he has a concert or if he has like something, I don't care if it's in a hole in the wall, I will be there. <laughs> so yeah. does he perform, is, is it just solo violin that he does all of these different genres of music or does he have, does he work with other musicians? So, yeah, so for his album, of course, he had, um, like, pr music production. And because he did, like, um, I'm trying to think of, um, uh, he has a, this rendition of, like, Purple Rain. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Is one of my absolute favorites. Yeah. And so he has, like, a, like a, a live band that performs, like, with him, like, for the music. But he, he does a little bit of everything. He just had a Christmas album that came out, which is amazing. amazing. Like I have the alert on Apple Music. So anytime anything comes from him that I can see it. But his last album was 2020, um, which was the Christmas album. But I listen to him like a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. It's just good music. Amazing. Very cool. Very cool. Very, very good. Well, Damien Escobar, everybody, yeah. if you have not, as we are going to do, uh, we are going to check him out and we yeah. encourage you to do the same. From your perspective as a member of the black community here in Canton, what kind of impact do you think your membership on the board will have in making the symphony a more welcoming place for the members of your community? My answer to that is really simple. Um, I think that it provides an opportunity to shatter myths and stereotypes about who classical music belongs to and it'll help to continue the conversation. I mean, that's all we have. I mean, there'll be some people that, that may be like, well, why is she on the board of the Canton Symphony? You know, 
come talk to me about it because then you know we can we can talk about why you should be you know why you should subscribe to you know Canton Symphony and support the Canton Symphony and share it with your family friends and children and so I think there's there's an opportunity to do that because that's probably I mean from my perspective I believe that that's why there's not a lot of um like minority like representation um within the classical community mm -hmm. and i think we we have a, an opportunity to shed some light on on why that doesn't have to be the case yeah yeah i mean yeah we've talked about this extensively about i, I mean classical music at all levels musician composer conductor administration board audience i think those are all the levels there might be more um primarily and overwhelmingly white um, and you know, it, sh it should not be that way because that's not what our communities look like. Um, and we've said this many times that if we want to stay relevant, if we want to continue and survive in 20 years, we've got to, we've got to be, we've got to spread a wider net. We've got to have bigger arms that are more open to different types of people. Um, and we have to make space and listen to those people. Um, so I'm really glad, I mean, it's what you said, very simple. You summed it up dispelling myths. And I think that, um, we're really trying to do that here, but our audience here in Canton is still very, very white. Um, and you said you've attended concerts before, but why, I mean, you kind of answered in, in your, in your last answer, but why do you think, it is that way. What what do you think we can do even now and starting this season and moving seasons from now to to kind of make our audience look more like what Stark County actually looks like? So, okay, as I was thinking about um, what this would mean for me as far as my election to the board, I decided that it was important for me to do some, like at least some some introductory research into like the history of classical music and different things like that. And it, you know, it seems to me from just a little bit of research that I've done that historically classical music is like economically and racially like elitist in some ways. And I think it's, that's something that like, it, it has a certain connotation like within the black community. I said, but what I also found is that there are black composers and musicians that have been very much part of the groundwork and the foundation of classical music but many of them have not necessarily been credited for their contributions or been like uplifted for their contributions to classical music. And so I think it, that's also why many black audiences don't believe that classical music is for them because they don't see themselves represented. And so that's what I, you know, if we're looking to transition that, then the we have to find ways to uplift and promote and celebrate the composers, the musicians that have that are of prominence and and have made these contributions to classical music because then it's not that far of a you know it's not that far away you know for someone to say oh there's someone that looks like me that represents my experience and 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 my identity that has found not just like a contribution but success and whatnot in classical music. I think we need that's the focus, mm -hmm. not just people who have done it. Like there's many people that have done a lot of things, mm -hmm. but uplifting and celebrating those that have had success and notoriety 
is really the key Mm -hmm. and just finding ways to be able to do that. I think that will change, start to change the conversation, but also get folks to maybe lean in to classical music a little bit more. So we at the Canton Symphony have a couple of ideas from that, that we got from previous seasons of the podcast, namely that this season, every single concert has at least one piece by a woman or a composer of color on it. And as well as we can't do this right away, but we're working toward hopefully in the next union contract, getting starting an apprenticeship program where young classical musicians of color can actually play on stage in the Canton Symphony Orchestra. I love that. What kind of an impact do you see these types of deliberate changes that we're looking to make, making on as far as encouraging more people from your community to come to the orchestra? Well, and I think about it like this, going back to what you said earlier about, you know, your experience with your parents, like they came Mm -hmm. because you were in it. And so having these types of like programs and like very intentional highlighting of these things, I mean, they, they kind of sell themselves. Like I, if my daughter is in the symphony and she's sitting in one of those seats, of course I'm going to come mm-hmm. and I'm going to invite other people to come as well. And so finding those like, and I mean, I know that there are, I mean, even at the, the school that my daughter was at, she wasn't the only violinist at that school. There were, there were three other um, young people of color that were part of the orchestra. Like, so, you know, we were the only ones in the audience, but we were there. And so if, you know, they're on the stage like, and they're from the community, I think that's like doing the research and really getting down to like ground level and finding out like who's in these orchestras. Are there any students that you can shoulder tap to be a part of these programs that are really close here? That's going to draw their friends and their family and to the orchestra to support. Yeah, yeah. And I think this year, so we're recording this in September of 2021. Um, We started our youth orchestra season. And uh, this is the first year that I've been here where we have more than two, two or three students of color in the program. In the past years, we've only had two or three. And it's it's typically been no more than one in each Each ensemble, ensemble, which has been, we have three ensembles. ensembles. So there was a year when I think each group had a person of color, but it's- This year, I don't know what happened, honestly. I don't know, but we have far more students of color in our program this year. Um, And I'm very excited about that because those, and we're also doing an incentive to try to get our students to take their parents to Canton Symphony concerts because, you know, young people grow by listening to the music that they're playing. So bring your parents along with you. And so I'm really hopeful that that will introduce some more new families into the symphony. Um, And this season, if you've been coming to our concerts, you've been able to see our gallery that features local black artist, Eric Freeman. Um, And I'm really excited about that. He's amazing and has been putting together some amazing work. So there are, I feel like we do have some touch points this year and I'm I'm excited to see how it plays out and I'm hopeful that it goes over well and that people enjoy it. And we start just naturally seeing a more diverse audience in our hall because 
honestly, we've got to do it. We <laughs> like it's it has to happen. I don't. It's like a non-starter at this point. I feel, um, but I, I, you know, kind of going back to you being a board member and you know your excitement about being a board member. Why do you think it's con- it's important that we continue a push to diversify our board even more throughout the next however long we exist as an orchestra? Well, I, I mean, we, we talk about it at, at my institution all the time is that we, we have a duty to make sure the folks that are making the decisions about the agencies that have outputs for our communities reflect the people that are in the community. Mm-hmm. So like, that's it. And period, like where we are, we're in, we're in downtown, you know, downtown Canton, like look around at the community and what do those, what do those percentages look like? Do we have boards and like and, and individuals in decision-making roles about the outputs that are impacting the community? And for, it sounds like, you know, just from like all the conversations that have been had, like typically that's not the case. And so to me, that seems backwards um, when we're talking about trying to do programming or initiatives for the community. How do you know what the community really wants if you don't have people from the community in those, in those you know, at the table? That, that doesn't make sense. And then, you know, then there's some sometimes like an indignancy or disappointment when a program or initiative doesn't go the way that, you know, an organization would ha- would they would want it to go. And then you have to ask yourself the question, well, did you ask the community who was there for that conversation? And overwhelmingly, they're not there. And so we have, because we talk about all the time, like, you know, we're students, we have students. And so when we have these big decisions we're making, of course, they can't be there for every conversation. But if there's some opportunity for us to get the students who these decisions are going to impact in a room to get their feedback and find out what's important to them, then we have a much better opportunity for success because we've asked the people that it impacts. I mean, this, I believe the same holds true for that. That's why we have to continue that type of work. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. sure, for yeah. sure, yeah. And you know, even when when we planned our season for this year, and yes, we have m- many concerts that have a composer of color on it this season. But even that was done just us. Like you weren't on the board yet, and and we sort of took a leap of faith. Like we we hope that this will speak to people, but we're glad that that we now have you that to to consult about this and and help us out when we when we are uh flying blind so to say (laughs) we we don't know exactly what what the the right solutions are so again we're, we're just so thrilled that that you're here on our board now now as we continue to grow and develop our board what can we do to make the board a safe space for people of color Okay, so I will tell you, this is probably the hardest question for me um, because like when I think about like safety, it, um, it has to do so much with like experiences and whether people are willing to take the risk, um, you know, based on their own experiences. So this, this was a hard one for me. Um, I think it's just that we continue to create, create space that's it. That's all, that's all that's in your control to do. It'll be up to the people 
you know, to make their decision. And it's not a right, there's not a right or a wrong decision. They'll have to decide if the space that has been created is enough for them to risk, you know, being vulnerable and being, and, you know, and, and connecting themselves in that way. And that's something that like the board and the Kent Symphony will never have control over, but we just create the space. We continue to ask the people that are impacted and then mm. just continue on that. That's, that's all we can do. Yeah. This idea of creating more space. I, um, this year at the Tony's, um, someone who won best um, screenplay, and I'm forgetting names. They're not coming to me right screenplay. now. No, it screenplay. Best play best or play. best book of a musical or best something book. like that. I forget who was someone, but in his except he was a he was a black man. In his exec ex acceptance speech, he said, "We love Shakespeare. We love Chaucer. We love all these people. We love them, and they're great, and they have a place at the table. But the table has to get bigger." Is what is what he said. He's like, we don't remove people from the table and add new ones. We just make the table bigger. And exactly. and I and I remember thinking exactly goes for classical music as well. And you know, everyone has their place at the table. So Bach, Beethoven, Haydn, Tchaikovsky, they're all at the table. We just have to make the table bigger. Same goes for our board. So I, I really like that just making more space. I think that's interesting. And I, you know, it's hard now a year and a half or so after the pandemic started, when I, I went from conducting almost every weekend at the beginning of 2020 to doing nothing at all for over a year. And in that time, I discovered all of this music that I didn't know existed before. And now it's hard for me to imagine that I ever didn't know it. Uh, I'm going to be conducting Florence Price's first symphony with the youth orchestra. Uh, by the time this episode airs, the concert will have already passed, but uh, it's coming up in about two months. And I'm so excited about it. And from the first rehearsal, it was just, I, I was so excited to be conducting this music. And I, again, it, it's like, it's hard now for me to imagine. I went so long, so much of my career not knowing exist, not knowing it existed, not knowing she had written these symphonies and concert overtures and a couple of concertos and this, she and and many others and and I'm just so excited to now know this music and be able to expand the table as far as the repertoire is concerned. Yeah, I'm just curious about your perception of, you know, I think your perception of, or, of orchestral music in relation to this community. Um, we live in a community that's very football focused, uh, right? We live in a community that's, um, it's, it, it's classical music probably wouldn't come to someone's mind when they think of Canton, Ohio. It's probably not the first thing that popped into your mind. But I wonder, thinking about this community here in Canton and classical music, do you think that it is a long-term sustainable partnership between the community and classical music or is there just kind of a you know because we found you know it's hard to sell tickets sometimes it is but i'm wondering like what you think that relationship is like looking authentically at this community and then at classical music so the short answer is yes i do think the relationship is sustainable um with that, it's going to take some very intentional work. 
um, like to your point about, you know, us being a football town, we give attention to the behavior that we want the most. So to quote my mother, like, you know, we, we spend a lot of time focusing, focusing, talking about football and the teams. And we have events centered around football and what they're doing. So of course, it becomes ingrained in part of the culture. Do I believe that classical music can, can work the same way in this community? Yes, I do. But we've got to start thinking um, beyond just like, what's happening right now. We have to, you know, do some predictions and look into the future and start making those relationships and those connections now. And so I always think about like legacy, yes, but also like those that are going to continue the tradition. And so I believe that, you know, our best bet, so to speak, is connecting to young people. So looking at those in even as young as like elementary school and creating opportunities for them to be directly connected to the Canton Symphony in very authentic and sustainable ways and building those relationships them, not just with those students, but with their parents and with the administrators at those schools and different things, because then it becomes part of the culture because it's part of the conversation. It's a no brainer. Yes, all of the classes at this school will be going to at least one concert this year. It becomes like, well, like, okay, you know, that first year you're talking about it, but then the next year it be, oh, where's my tickets to the symphony? Because, you know, I need to get my tickets because I need to make sure that I'm sitting in the best place for the concert. And so building those relationships and connecting and exciting like that younger generation you know, because I mean, I believe that that's what happened to my daughter. I don't know exactly what happened, but someone somewhere caught her at a very pivotal point when she was trying to figure out like how to make that connection with music. And they grabbed her at that moment. And she said, I'm not picking, you know, drums or I'm not picking a trumpet. I'm not, I'm picking a violin. And she was very adamant. That's the instrument I'm picking. And I'm committing myself to that through high school and period. There are, I believe there are a ton of young people, like little kids that don't even know how much they love the symphony. And there's some young composer sitting somewhere in a kindergarten class drawing what would be musical notes in crayon somewhere in a kindergarten class. Mm -hmm. And it, it all it takes is like that, you know, that spark that says, they're like, oh, okay. And so I think just ways that we can do that is how we will make it sustainable because then it becomes a part of the culture and it's a no brainer. Yeah. Well, as we wrap up today, we are going to ask you the question we ask every guest at the end of each episode. The podcast is of course called orchestrating change. So how do we orchestrate change? By being open to change and being comfortable with the uncomfortable and really pushing ourselves and challenging ourselves um, to think outside of the box and just being like kind and thoughtful people. So many times we have an opportunity to make change if we would just think beyond just ourselves and offer just even simple kindness 
to one another because then it changes the perception. So I think about, you know, even the work you all do, you may have a simple conversation. We never know what causes that spark for people. You might have a simple conversation with someone. There might be a listener like to this podcast who hears something that we're saying and they're like, oh man, that just, just changed my heart. And it made me think of something else. And maybe whatever they were going to do before that, they decide not to do it because that's the power of, of our words and our com commitment to being like kind and thoughtful people that allow these things to happen. So I think just be, being committed to that on a regular basis is how we orchestrate change. TK Payton, thank you so, so, so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to yeah. speak with you. Great. Thank you all for having me. It's been wonderful to talk about this very important topic. And I'm looking forward to continuing the work with Canton Symphony Orchestra. And that's it. Yeah. TK Payton, the Dean of Students at Walsh University, a graduate of Project Blueprint, and one of our newest members of the board here at the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer and mixer is Nathan Maslick with video and audio editing by Shoreline Media. Thank you for listening and see you next time.